Redemption Church, you guys good this morning? You healthy, you happy, you whole? All right, I dig it. That's fantastic. Me too, but it's a little nippy outside. It's cold, man. I thought it was going to be all sunny this morning. I got to wait till the afternoon. I got to stop complaining, but I'm, I'm 51. It's what I do now. I'm old enough to complain. So anyway, before I get underway with the day, uh, just a couple of things I want to let you know about. The first, because I'm sure some of you are wondering, I've already had some people ask me about this, uh, but obviously our governor has uh, kind of set a date for the lifting of the mask mandate for all sorts of different environments, and that will also be true for school districts, but we have a message into them just to see exactly when we're going to be freed up as well to do that here on Sunday mornings. Uh, but, but as I say that too, I, I want to just again publicly give a big shout out to our school district. Uh, if we do the math, we were without uh, the option of using a building as a church for 19 months through the pandemic, right? We were meeting down on the lot and everything else. Uh, and then finally, uh, kind of this October, this last October rolled around and the district was awesome at making a way for us to get in here and meet again as a church. And they said, hey, the only thing we're asking is that you honor kind of the state mandate, the mandate of the school itself to wear masks during that time. And we're like, man, thank you for letting us use your house for our worship, and so we totally honored that, and we've sought to honor that all the way through. Uh, but hopefully in the next couple of weeks, that's going to be done around here. That's what we're hoping, so we're just waiting to hear in the middle of this week that's going to be the case. So next week, when you come to church, make sure you still have your mask in your pocket just in case, but hopefully soon enough, uh, that will be something that is behind us. But again, man, our district is rad. As a matter of fact, right now, just give the district a hand, the people of the district, because literally... Their house opened up to us. We are blessed for that. So that's the first thing you want to keep in mind. But that leads into the second thing, which is, man, we are hoping sooner than later we're going to have our own facility, which would be rad, right down there on Main Street, right on 203. Our paperwork is in with the city. They said that's about 8 to 12 weeks of looking that over. By the way, that's like the last iteration of our paperwork. We've been doing this for years. Uh, hopefully this is the last chunk of it. And then with that, uh, the architect is finishing up the final plans to go to our general contractor, and they can give us kind of some final numbers and that kind of thing. And then also in line with that, we have been working with a lender. We've got some preliminary okay on that. But I also want to just remind us that between now and hopefully this summer when we break ground, we want to continue to be faithful to giving to kind of this whole endeavor of the building, keep giving to the building program and that kind of thing. Because what we know is in a couple of months, the lender will roll back around and say, hey, let's continue to see how your books are doing. Let's see how the financing is coming toward your building. We want to make sure we're still giving to that cause and that project, but it's really exciting what's coming together. So very, very uh, just personally enthusiastic for what I'm seeing there. And just to think that, man, this summer we could see dirt moving around down there. That would be rad, right? And right next to a donut place again, look at sovereignty. God set it up. Donuts and church, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. All right, so it's going to be great that way as well. Now, as we also get underway, we're going to go ahead and give a moment of silence where you can kind of pray just quietly to yourself, to God, uh, as we get ready for this morning. And, and you'll notice even the way Trent started off the morning with kind of a prayer of invocation, and now it's a time for us to kind of just quietly to ourselves pray. Uh, this is something we've been talking about, where we don't want to simply look at coming together on Sunday morning as just like this responsible thing that Christians do, uh, but we want to see it as this invitation for God to really move and speak into our lives and to move in us in such a way that we become more like Jesus. And so doing this little moment of prayer is designed for all of us to say, Holy Spirit, what is it you have for me? Because one of the 
more odd things that I experience as a pastor sometimes is people will come out to me after a service on Sunday and say, when you said this, that really just moved me in a real powerful way. And I'm listening going, I didn't say that right? Like that, that's something the Holy Spirit did in you with my clumsy words. And so we always want to be in a place where we say, Holy Spirit, whatever you have for me as an individual, I want you to teach me today. And so right now, let's just give us a moment here to pray quietly. Then I'll go ahead and pray and we'll jump right into the gospel of Luke chapter 18. Jesus, I think about our friend Paul, who, in reflecting on all of your work in life and ministry, highlighted how you built a church that now stands as a new temple. And from that, we know that right now, this space is sacred space because your people are joined together as your temple. And so I pray that you will converge on the sacred space among your people and that you will guide and open our hearts to what it is you have for each of us as individuals so that we know how to not simply apply it, but how to really own what it is you have for our lives, that we would live unique and distinct for you because that's what most matters in this world. And so Jesus, today, as we look at something that you say here in Luke 18 that, that shapes our entire destiny I pray that we will absorb that and live that out and show that to the world around us in ways that are gracious and compassionate and merciful. And so teach us and guide us in your truth so that we might be more like you and your kind and good name, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, on the 24th of February was my birthday, but my birthday was overshadowed by the events of Russia and Ukraine and and I don't know about you, but for me, I, I spent a lot more of that day just trying to stay apprised of everything that was going on. And since that time, I've just been personally just utterly heartbroken and just feel helpless in the midst of what I'm watching. And yet it's amazing, too, in that whole narrative, I'm watching the president of Ukraine, and I'm like, this person is amazing. I'm just so impressed by the leadership that is there in the midst of pressure and strain and destruction. Like, I, I try to listen to every one of his speeches, and they move me because here's this guy that could be ranting and raving and angry and bombastic and just using all sorts of language if he wanted to, but he stays measured and controlled, and he's thoughtful in what he says, and he's not trying to stir up greater animosity, but he's trying to simmer things down as much as possible, but still being strong for his people. And so I see that grit and that resilience and that focus and that sense of control where there's strength, but he's just not lashing out. And I'm like, man, that's the kind of leader that I want to follow. Like that kind of leader moves me. And I think about this too. He knows that the odds are not in his favor. He knows it's not in the favor of Ukraine or of his people to be able to really stand against just such a powerful and destructive force. But he continues to just kind of have this backbone. And I go, that is the kind of leader that we as human beings tend to eagerly follow or support or say, hey, that's where I'm going to put my allegiance. So imagine then how strange it is when you have a leader that comes onto the scene and they're strong and determined and resilient, 
but their message is a little different. It's not necessarily, hey, we will survive, we will win, we will defeat, but imagine a leader that says, okay, here's the deal. When it comes to your enemies, those who set their will against you, I want you to love them. Turn the other cheek to them. When it comes to your lives, I want you to be willing to self-sacrificially lay those lives down. Not in glorious battle, but in a sense of humility. And then that leader says, because that's exactly what I'm going to do for the world. I'm going to lay myself down. I'm going to die to myself, be slain by my enemies. Not on a glorious battlefield with sword in hand, but laying down all weapons, giving my life for the world. This is how I'm going to choose to lead. See, not many of us would want to follow that leader, but we all follow Jesus, and in doing so, we all follow that leader, right? He's a very different kind of leader. Recently, I did a podcast where I said, Jesus is a loser. He's the ultimate loser. But this is where it's so unique and strange and backwards and beautiful and glorious that he is this upside down and backwards leader in such a way that he shows that losing is the supreme form of winning, that doing things in a way that is so different than the world is the very thing that will actually rescue the world. And that's exactly the words that we're going to look at this morning here in the Gospel of Luke. And so uh, we have an app, and in the app are all the verses under the note section. You can go to that, or you can simply turn or tap to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, because that's where we're going to be camping out for a little bit today. But as we do this, I want you to understand something about Luke's gospel and how he's approaching his narrative and writing about the life of Jesus. Uh, what he does is he crafts it a bit like a journey. And, and so the journey starts in Galilee, that upper eastern region from Jerusalem, where Jesus does a lot of his ministry and a lot of his preaching and healing and teaching and all of that happens up in there. But then the journey shifts in chapter 9, verse 51 of Luke's gospel. And he begins to move away from Galilee, and it says he sets his face toward Jerusalem. So it's in that scene, at that pivotal moment in chapter 9, that now there's this new sense of focus and tenacity, and he's possessed by his cause. Whatever comes next, Jesus knows he's going to the capital city of God, right? Jerusalem is the place where he's headed. And you want to keep that in mind, that idea that he's going to the capital city of God. Because that is like the, the epicenter of everything that his life and ministry kind of revolves around. It's the icon of God's presence on earth among his people. But here's the problem. As he heads to the city of God, that very city has already rejected God. But it's rejected God in a way that it doesn't realize it. So it thinks it's honoring God, but in reality, Jesus is going to tell them, you don't honor God, you think you know God, but you're lost when it comes to the things of God. And he's trying to course correct that, though they're very resistant. So resistant that he will enter the city of God, and the people of God will seek to slaughter the Son of God. And as they do so, they think they're doing God a favor as they kill Jesus. And it's because of this that we will see that God will then reject the city of God. Within one generation, the Romans will descend upon the city. They will wipe out the city, drive out the people, because they did not recognize the day of God's visitation in the person of Jesus. So that's the journey, that's the narrative, that's where this whole story is going to go at this point. But at this stage in the journey... 
even for the people that are closest to Jesus, people that have been with him now for three years, they've been listening, they've been watching, they themselves have gone and done some pretty phenomenal things. Even that group of the 12, they can't fully fathom what this whole story is all about because they've been front-loaded. They're good Jewish boys coming from good Jewish homes. They've been taught a lot of good Jewish stories about a good Jewish Messiah that's going to come and basically instigate a holy war with all of their enemies. And so this is what they're thinking. As they're watching Jesus, listening to Jesus, they're also assuming upon Jesus that he will be a certain kind of figure, do certain kinds of things, and it will fulfill their particular vision and ambitions for the world. Because what they're looking for in a Messiah is somebody who is this David-like figure. So they refer back to the Old Testament, and they think about their greatest, most conquering king, and they go, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for one that comes just like the son of David, and he will crush the Romans, and he will elevate the Israelites, and he will establish a nationalistic kingdom from sea to shining sea, in essence, is the way they kind of look at this. And they believe that Jesus is this David-like warrior king. Right? That's what they're front-loaded with. Now, I want to be kind of clear here. David, or Jesus rather, is like David. He's Davidic. And Jesus is a king. That's all true when you read through the story. But he's a king like David in completely other ways. You could some, in some ways almost say, the typical king and the typical David, he's like that, only opposite. That's how bizarre and strange it's going to be because his kingdom is otherworldly. His kingdom is one where he's going to teach, hey, loss is real gain, and nonviolent sacrifice is genuine love, and death makes way for life. That's what he's going to begin to teach about, and that's what he's going to open up as far as his message for today. So, starting in verse 31, it says, Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus said this. He says, Listen. We're going up to Jerusalem where all the prediction of the prophets concerning the Son of Man are going to come true. Now, weirdly enough, they're going down to Jerusalem, not up, but this is kind of a metaphysical idea. Jerusalem is the pinnacle city. So in that sense, even if you're going from the north to the south, you're still going up to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is on a hill, right? So this is a part of where the journey is going to lead. And in saying this, he says, also, it's going to be in that space, at that time, in these conditions, that everything you've ever learned about, about the Son of Man, is going to come true when it comes to the prophets. Now, here's the weird part about the statement. When you go back and read the Old Testament prophets, they almost never talk about the Son of Man as a label. Now, you see it in Ezekiel over 90 times, but every time it comes up there, it's talking about Ezekiel himself. He's the Son of Man. So Jesus can't be referring to those prophecies because that's about a dude back then. It's not about a dude that's coming later. Once in the book of Daniel, Daniel's called the Son of Man. So, so that can't be it. And when we distill down the entire Old Testament, right, that Hebrew tradition, there's one passage, only one, that refers to somebody who is the Son of Man. But that passage was sacred to the Jewish people. Because in that passage, it gave again the vision of this conquering king who would step in and elevate Israel and deal with the other nations, and they would be high and everybody else would be low, and again, there would be this nationalistic kingdom under the Son of Man. That's what they envisioned. It comes in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's writing, and he says this. He says, My vision continued that night, and I saw someone like a son of man 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and he was led into his presence. And it's this, this son of man that was given authority and honor and sovereignty over the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And so when Jesus says, hey, everything you know about, about the Son of Man, Son of Man is about to come true, they're like, Daniel 7, this is awesome. He's the guy. This is epic. We're going to light up the Romans. We're going to go after those crazy, like, toga-wearing thugs, and we're going to get back at them. We're going to deal with the fact that they've oppressed us for too long, taxed us too much, put our lives in peril and jeopardy and pushed us around. Now's the time. So I'm sure all the disciples are hearing this, and they're just processing, like, this is awesome. Sharpen your swords, boys. Get your victory dance going. We're going to make Israel great again. Like, they're after this, right? This is going to be fantastic. They have all of this front-loaded vision. They're going to be the ones that finally get back at everyone and everything that's held them down. And then Jesus says this. The Son of Man that you've been looking for, waiting for, longing for, he will be handed over to the Romans. And he will be mocked and treated shamefully and spit upon. And they will flog him with a whip and they will kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. As he says this, I always try to figure out, like, what was it like being in the room? Right? One minute you're thinking, like, all right, we're going to kick butt, take names. And the next minute he says this, and it's just blank stares looking at each other like this is not where I thought this conversation was going to go son of man is not a weakling son of man doesn't get his butt kicked son of man is the one who does the butt kicking and now he's saying this is what's going to happen to the son of man I mean think about it they thought this son of man would show up and dash the Romans instead what he says is that the people of God the one that the son of man was supposed to come and rescue those people are going to take Jesus this figure and they're going to give him to the Romans and the Romans are going to throttle him this is so backwards instead of the son of man inflicting wrath the son of man will suffer wrath Daniel's son of man who comes in this unconquerable kingdom here we see is humiliated and brutalized and slaughtered so Jesus fulfilling this role is the one who will lose and then Rome will win and the Jewish people will celebrate this fact can you see just how utterly opposite and different and unanticipated this message is talk about a buzzkill in seven seconds total buzzkill for these guys because again they are front loaded with a certain vision that things are going to go a certain way and now Jesus is rolling in and saying nope everything you've thought everything you planned everything you desire is now going to go completely opposite but it illustrates again this message we've seen repeatedly throughout Luke and why Luke is scandalous because again everything is so different the kingdom we have learned is about letting go of your life to find true life the kingdom is about giving everything away so you gain even more. This is also true for us because it was true of Jesus who did these things for us. He's trying to just help us understand what this is all about. Now, of course, in this passage, it also says there, and on the third day he will rise again. But what the heck does that mean to these guys? 
They were just as skeptical about death and resurrection as we would be. So that, oh, he's going to rise on the third day. They're like, I don't even know what that's about. That's foreign to their thinking as well. And so again, everything they've been hoping for and longing for is falling apart right before their eyes, at least with what Jesus is saying. In fact, it's so strange, they can't even grasp it. Verse 34 says they didn't understand any of this, right? The significance of his words were hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. I think there's two layers to this. One layer is, again, it's just so different than what is anticipated that they can't even process this, right? They, they can't understand how you can have a Davidic son of man figure from Daniel lose, and lose so brutally. It's not just like, oh, again, on the field of battle, he's slain. That would make him like at least a, a hero martyr of the most normal type. No, what he's saying is literally like, hey, I'm going to be handed over, and they're going to spit on me and mock me and beat me. All the, this is going to happen, and they're like, what are you talking about? The Old Testament never verifies this. The, the Old Testament seems the opposite of that to us, and so they can't fathom it at that level. But in another very real way, this message that Jesus is sharing, this way that he's going to save the world, is so deep and so unanticipated. Uh, it's like God is currently like even suppressing their ability to understand it. There's a sense in which in his own sovereignty, he's like, you know what? Um, you're not going to understand what this means today. It's going to require divine revelation. On this day, you're clueless. But there's going to be this other day. In fact, there'll be this one day where you're dumbfounded, another day where you're scared, and then there's a third day where the sun will rise, and on that day, you'll understand everything I'm saying today. But it's going to be delayed. God will have to show them. But for now, they remain blind. Blind to what this Savior is going to do and how a slain Savior will save the world. What I love about where Luke puts this story is that not everyone is blind on the day that Jesus says this. In fact, immediately after this, we are introduced then to a person who is actually blind. But from this, where the disciples are blind spiritually, blind intellectually, this blind person physically has some insight that gives us a little bit more storyline for Jesus. Verse 35, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind beggar was there sitting beside the road. And when he heard the noise of the crowd going past, he asked what was happening. And they told him that Jesus, the Nazarene, was going by. So he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now what I love about this is that the pattern we've seen in Luke still stays in place. It's another comparative pattern. So last week when we were together, we learned that there was this rich young ruler. And now today we are introduced to a poor blind beggar completely opposite and between the stories is the sacrificial savior who just literally said i'm coming to lay my life down for others and what's great about that is he, he will rescue the poor the poor and he will rescue the rich as well if they fully rely on him and, and we've learned some of that but but what i really love about this little intersection here is that this man sees in jesus something that everybody else overlooks and so he makes a link Notice what he hollered out. He said, son of David, have mercy on me. 
in their environment, again, in the first century and what they were expecting about this chosen one that would rescue them all, this idea of a son of man and a son of David were kind of interlocked. So the son of man that comes on the clouds to subdue the nations is the son of David who comes with a sword to defeat the enemies and set up a kingdom, right? They're, they're kind of interwoven together. But in Luke, it's the first time that this label's been used by somebody outside of the first two chapters of this gospel. So back when it was kind of outlining the whole, there's one that's going to come, and he's going to be born of a virgin, and there's this tone to the son of David being the person of Jesus. But then all the way through Luke until chapter 18, not a single soul has used this label until this blind guy on the side of the road. And while he's shouting, son of David, anybody that hears this are going to think, that's right, the warring king that's going to come and liberate us, For this blind beggar, his idea of a son of man has a different label to it. Here's why. Um, If you go and you read the history of David, you will see he was violent. You will see that he was a warring king. He dominated his environment. That's true. And that's how most people would think of him. But for the poor, and forgive me for using a bit of a Catholic idea here, but in some strange sort of way, for the poor, David was like the patron saint of the poor. In fact, when you read his psalms, don't read his history, you see violence there a lot, but when you read his psalms, what you see is that David repeatedly has a heart for the poor. He sings about the plight of the poor. He worries about justice toward the poor. In fact, in Psalm chapter 12, he's writing about this, and then the Lord replies and he pens this. He says, I have seen the violence done to the helpless. I have heard the groans of the poor. Now I will rise up to rescue them as I have have longed for me to do. Or Psalm 35, with every bone in my body, I praise the Lord. Who can compare with you? Who else rescues the helpless from the strong? Who else protects the helpless and the poor from those who rob them? Or even Psalm 41, oh, the joys of those who are kind to the poor. The Lord rescues them when they are in trouble. See, while most people hear son of David and they think conquering king, the poor think son of David, oh, the one who can show me mercy and rescue me from my poor plight. So his heart, his meaning, his reference point is different than the masses. And so he's hollering away. He sees in Jesus that which other people are overlooking or misunderstanding. And you know what he gets for all of this? Have mercy, help me, son of David, have mercy. You know what he gets? He gets shushed. He gets shushed. They say, be quiet. That's the people in the front. Of course they're in the front. They already got a maid. They're already up front. But he only shouted louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. I love this. He's like, shush me, shush you. Watch me do this. Right? He's not going to stand, but he's like, you fools. I know who this dude is. I know what this guy can do. And so he just keeps crying out, right? He doubles down. So when Jesus heard him, he stopped, and he then ordered the man be brought to him. And then the man came near, and Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? I love this part of the story, and here's why. In Jesus asking the man the question, he shows this marginalized man that he has dignity. In other words, it's not like he says, oh, this guy's a problem to be solved right now. It's like, no, this man is a person to be honored. See, their world was much like ours, tragically, right? Where there's not always a lot of focus on the dignity of the homeless, If anything, we're more apt to tell them what to do than to ask them what they need. 
right? Get off the sidewalk. Stop being under the overpasses. We don't want to see you when we go into a baseball game. Like, just go, go away. Like, we're more apt to tell them what to do. But Jesus is like, no, I want, to, I want to hear from this man. What does he need me to do? What does he need me to invest into? So every person bears the image of God, and Jesus knows it, and so he, so he sees the dignity of this poor, blind individual and asks him the question, what do you need from me? And it's an intriguing question, right? Because the man could go any number of directions. He could shoot really low, right? And, and just be like, um, I could use money. I could use some food. I, I could use a small house or just a tent, something. I, just a place to maybe live. I could use that. You could go low. Or you could go big, go for the whole chalupa. You know what I'm saying? And he seems to go big. What's he say? He says, Lord, I want to see He's like, I don't need to be rich. I don't even need to be free. I just want to be able to be able to see. And so Jesus says, all right, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And instantly the man could see. And then he followed Jesus, praising God. And all who saw it praised God as well. Here's what's cool about the story. You know what this dude is? He's a great big baby. He's a great big baby, right? Remember what we learned last week about the little ones that come to Jesus totally helpless? Nothing to give, nothing to bring, nothing to offer. Jesus says, let those ones come to me. That's the kingdom. No sooner does he say it, and then somebody with power and wealth and control rolls in, and they decide, nope, too much for me, that this guy rolls in. He's like, I bring nothing to the table. I'll totally take what you're given. He's a big baby. He comes in like a little one. And Jesus says, come, just like he did to the children. Remember how people try to keep the kids from coming to Jesus? And Jesus says, what are you doing? Bring the little ones to me. Now the crowd's trying to keep this blind beggar from Jesus. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? This is the kingdom right here. Let that guy come to me. And from this, he's changed, right? The word for healed here in the original Greek language that Luke is writing in is the exact same word we translate as saved. Healed and saved. So he's saying to this man, your faith, yes, it has healed your eyes. But equally, your faith is this catalyst that has saved your soul. And this guy doesn't have grand, big faith. He just has risk. That's what faith is all about. Risk is, or faith is like this sense of just, I don't know what, what I have to offer or what I have to bring or what I have to give. I'm just going to take a risk here and I'm going to trust this one to change my life and do everything. And that's what happens here. And so the question that the disciples had just asked that we looked at last week, who can be saved? Jesus continues to reinforce it. Helpless little babies can be saved. Helpless tax collectors who beat their chests can be saved. Prostitutes who have nothing to offer but come just weeping and washing feet, they can be saved. And this blind beggar that comes like a big baby with nothing to offer, that's the one that can be saved. And what I dig about this is I'm sure this guy, over the course of time of being blind, he thought, man, if I had my sight again, I would do this, I would do that, I would get a job, I, I would have a family or maybe a family again or whatever else. Like, who knows what his story is? He probably had all these aspirations if he could just have his vision back. But once he has his vision back, all his dreams just die away. And he's like, whatever I thought I was going to do doesn't matter now. What's it say? It says he follows Jesus follows Jesus praising him. It's like, all right, my, my whole life has a new orientation. It's all about him and what he wants to do through my life because now I am completely wed to him. 
What's great about this story is it just reminds us that we're all a bunch of blind beggars. Really? Like this is to be the posture we always maintain. Not just blind beggars and how we come to Jesus and he rescues us in faith and grace, but as we continue to journey in our lives with Jesus, we should keep the posture of a blind beggar, humble, broken, dependent, helping others see that they're just blind beggars too, that we're all reliant on the grace of God because that's what that man calls out for. God, show me mercy. Show me your grace. It's not what I do, but it's what you do for me. It's not what I can offer, but it's what you freely offer to me. See, that's how we celebrate this message of the gospel, this thing of Jesus. It's not us, it's all him. In fact, I love just by way of the pieces that fit and how God wanted to steer things together that today is Communion Sunday. Communion Sunday on a day that's all about what this good news of Jesus is all about. That he does things unlike the world and he lays himself down for us and he was willing to be treated so hostily by us as a race. He literally puts himself in our hands and we, we slaughter him for it. He says, but that's okay because that is how my love is displayed. That is how my reconciliation to the world is made. That is how my blood is shed for you so that you can have new life in me. Right now, I want to bring the worship team up for our time of communion. As we reflect on the fact that this is all about his amazing grace, right? It is not about our goodness. Our goodness doesn't get us in and our goodness doesn't maintain our faith in any way. Even our faith, it's kind of a weird thing. Like he says, your faith has, has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Even our faith is so clumsy and flawed and reckless. Even that really is a tribute to his grace. Right? That we're merely human. But he is good and kind to us as humans. Becomes a human for us. Lives among us. Dies for us. But then as he promised, and on the third day rose to conquer Satan, sin, and death, and to give us new life in himself. And so, we think about his message. We think about the scene where it talks about on the night in which he was betrayed by friends, betrayed by a nation, betrayed by the city of God, right? That he's talking to his followers who don't even get the full story yet. They won't for a couple of days. But we know the full story. As we think about his words, takes a loaf of bread, prays, thanks God, which is amazing to me when you're thinking about all the stresses of the next 24 hours that he's thankful. That's a lesson for us right there. But he thanks God and he breaks the bread and he passes it out to his disciples. And he says, this bread is the, the way that my body is given for you. It's broken for you, given for your life. Do this in remembrance of me. So at the end of the meal, he takes a cup of wine. And they would have associated this with old celebrations of limited reach when it comes to dealing with our sin, our rebellion against God. And he says, no, this is a new covenant, a new way of connecting to God, shed by me through my blood, through my sacrifice, being handed to the Romans, dying a criminal's death. 
but then from that making those who are enemies of God friends and sons and daughters of God. In light of this, he says, drink this as often as you remember it in remembrance of me. Jesus, we are grateful for your grace. We are grateful that you are upside down and backwards from the ways of the world. We thank you that you are scandalous and you disrupt every one of the stereotypes that we think are strength, power, might, and conquering, and you do something utterly different, and you are redeeming the world in that way. May we be faithful ambassadors of your message and vision. May we be good diplomats. May we be the peacemakers. May we go the extra mile for you. May we lay ourselves down as you laid yourselves down or yourself down for us so that we might represent you all the more. We thank you, Jesus, for so rich a grace in your good name.